Next weekend, uh, we're delighted that some of our uh, leaders here with Boy With The Ball specifically will be in Mobile, uh, Alabama, where they will be working uh, with Covenant Church of Mobile. Uh, you know Keith and Patricia Curry. They've been here and spoken to us before, and that also happen to be parents of a few people we know and love. And uh, Keith and Patricia pastor church uh, down in Mobile, and the team is going down there to help them with the Love Your City model that we do here at the Sarah Court Apartments. Um, and they're going to be working with them on Saturday and doing some walkthroughs. They'll be working with the youth team, speaking at the youth group, speaking at church on Sunday. They have a full weekend. And it's such an honor for us to be able to send such great representatives down to equip that community that we love so dearly. So please be praying for them. And at the same time, Don and I will be going with Patrick and Melody, and we're going to be flying out to California to be uh, with a church out there that we know and love, a Saddleback Covenant Church. Um, not Saddleback Church, but uh, Saddleback Covenant Church. And uh, we'll be going to a marriage advance, they call it, not a retreat. And so we're looking forward to being there and learning some ideas, maybe to bring back some things for us here as a community. So please be praying for us. And Brother Curtis will be sharing next Sunday as he brings the word. So please be praying for all of those pieces. We're small, but man, we're busy. <laughs> and we do a lot of things impacting a lot of people. So if you take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel and chapter 6, and in a few moments, uh, we're going to get there. Uh, as a means of broadening and training our younger leaders, I have, during this series on the life of David, uh, invoked three volunteers. Actually, they weren't, I had to, I had to list them. <laughs> I had to draft them into this. And uh, to help me with speaking on the life of David. A few months ago, we heard from my daughter, Emily Reap. And she spoke when we were talking about Abigail. And it was such a blessing to have her. She's also been kind of a research assistant for me in this study. She's been doing a lot. In fact, you think I'm really smart. It's really Emily. So uh, she says most of what I say that's good. Uh, today, we're going to hear from Joey Johnson. Uh, Josiah. Joey is actually my godson. And, uh, and so he is very special to me. Uh, so see, if you're not related to me, you can be. <laughs> I'll be your godfather too. <laughs> Today we're talking about David and Uzzah, and if we get to it, to Michal, or I like to call her Michael. Joey calls her Michelle. So it doesn't matter, you can call her whatever you want. But we're going to primarily focus on the story of David and Uzzah, and he's going to get to it in a few moments. Um, it's a really big thing uh, for someone to enlist the power of God and his uh, inspiration and to prepare and then to get up in front of this scary group of people and speak. So I hope that you'll go easy on him, like smile really big, say a few amens here and there and give him that, you know, fist bump in the air. Make sure that he knows that you're with him because I know I'm with him. And so I'm going to ask Joey to come and start. Yeah. Am I on? Thanks, guys. Uh, give me a second to fumble around here. I'll get to it. I feel like that looks good. Um, as I'm doing this, I'll say uh, thank you guys uh, for having me. I think it's exciting. It's um, something I've never done before, so I am very nervous. 
Um, but I am also, I think, uh, I feel really grateful to Chris uh, for um, allowing opportunity for younger leaders to grow. And I would also say, uh, I also wanted to really thank um, James, who is right there, um, for uh, really setting me up today. He actually, in a lot of ways, sort of spoke my message. Um, so I'm going to amen a lot of things he said. But I was thinking, to some extent, that's probably natural based off how I've been in this church since I was young and so much of who I am is based off the things that you guys have said to me or done with me. Um, so to some extent this is a, a moment to see what you guys put in and see how it comes back out. So, um, so if it goes bad. <laughs> but uh, I am really excited. Uh, this is a group that I really respect and I am uh, uh, to some extent intimidated uh, by you guys, um, but I'm hoping that today I don't come across as a dummy myself. Um, though you, um, let's address the elephant in the room, which is, um, why was I asked to speak? Um, uh, I too am confused by it. Um, when Chris came and he was like, I want to enlist younger leaders to speak, I was like, awesome, that sounds great. And he was like, I want to ask Emily. I was like, Perfect. He was like, he was like, what? If, I'm also gonna ask Molly. I was like, absolutely. And then he was like, and I'm gonna ask Joe. And I was like, sure. What? <laughs> I was like, uh, um, they're fantastic thinkers and orators, and really uh, good at enunciating and saying words good. Um, but I, on the other hand, uh, last night opened my fridge and realized that we were out of chocolate milk. So I laid down in defeat and went into fetal position for about 15 minutes. Um, so that's the kind of mind that we're working with this morning. Um, uh, <laughs> but here I am uh, for what will probably be the only time I'm asked to do this. Uh, and so I have two goals. One is to say what I really do believe the Father has put on my heart to say. And uh, number two is to not say anything too dumb that gets me kicked out of the church. Uh, I originally wrote that line and I had anything dumb that gets me kicked out of the church and my dad said, put two just in case. <laughs> uh, so to get you guys in the right frame of mind for receiving what I have to say, um, think about a time where somebody was really gracious with you after you had really messed something up um, and then stay in that frame of mind as you relate to me after church. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, let's go. <laughs> Before we really get the show on the road, I do want to point out that this is what I really feel like the Lord's been putting on my heart, um, and I'm really hoping uh, that where he's been speaking to me and correcting and uh, uh, I think really pouring life into me, that that might be able to pour life into each of you guys. Um, so I am, let's read the story. I am going to be reading out of 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 8. I believe that we have the verses up there. I'm reading out of the ESV. Um, so uh, I'll read this beginning to you guys. Uh, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him in Baal Judah to bring up from the hair the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on the new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ayah, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ayah went before the ark. 
And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs, and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nekon, which I think is a funny word, um, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, where God's fury kindled against Uzzah. I don't believe this is anyone's favorite Bible story. Um, We tend to read it and be filled with a sense of horror. It's a story that due to its dramatic nature, it's really easy to miss the point of it. There are certain stories like this that we have to be careful to not read faithlessly. Um, The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Abraham going to sacrifice his son at the mountain, the sudden deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. Without faith, it's easy to lose perspective on what God is doing in any given moment and who God is in every given moment. The story of Uzzah and the ark is a nuanced depiction of God's goodness, grace, and as Brother Charles often has reminded us, his seriousness. There is a danger when reading the story to think of God striking down of Uzzah as sudden or harsh or shocking, but that's far from the truth. This was to be a wonderful day throughout all of Israel. Um, after years of running, though anointed, God had brought a David to the throne, and he is here to unite Israel with this crowning jewel of bringing the ark back into the temple, into its rightful place. A parade was arranged to celebrate this grand moment. They sounded out for the newest form of ark-carrying technology developed by Microsoft, in which a card led by oxen would carry this holy symbol. All this to bring praise to God. They called the color guard and the best marching band in all of the land, my paraphrasing, to create an ambiance that would put the Macy's Day Parade to shame. People were dancing, laughing, crying tears of joy. Oh God, you are so good. And then one of the oxen's feet caught on a twig, causing the ark to slide. And Uzzah does what any person would do when they start to feel their iPhone slip from their lap at the dinner table and reaches for it to save it. And in the moment that he lays his hand on it, he fell lifeless on his face. This was not the cinematic moment with the orchestral soundtrack playing in the background that David had envisioned for this day. This was supposed to be a day of God's kingdom and people made right in Israel. Instead, it's a day where God couldn't be cool for a moment um, about a harmless offense to his law. Or so it seems. Let's back up a little. The the Ark of the Covenant, and I hope I have a picture. There we go. (laughs) Thanks. This is a really well done shop. There's so many things. They put the mic on today, and when Chris put it on, I was like, I'm going to look like Jennifer Lopez. (laughs) Uh, And then I was like, do do I need to upload any of the pictures? And they're like, they've got it. And I was like, you guys treat me like a prince. (laughs) I was like... This is amazing. Uh, But let's back up a little. The Ark of the Covenant is a gold-covered wooden chest with a lid described in the book of Exodus as containing two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. According to the various texts within the Hebrew Bible, uh, it also contained Aaron's rod, a pot of manna, and this Ark was constructed following Moses' direct response to God's command at the Mount Sinai. 
Um, these items selected by God were his will incarnate for his people. Um, in the ark were all the instructions, tools, and aids God had given to his Israelites to free them from Egypt and to walk them into the wide open spaces that he had called them to. The lid of the ark carried two cherubim, which are angelic-looking creatures, um, who are looking down at these tools, casting judgment on the people's obedience to God's command and to their following of these aids. The lid of the ark was bowl-shaped to allow for the blood of the uh, sacrifices to gather, covering Israel's transgressions from the cherubim's sight. When we refer to Jesus as the blood of the lamb, we are referring to how his blood has served as the sacrifice that covers that judgment. The ark so precious has four golden loops along the bottom to slide two wooden beams through and to allow men chosen by God to carry the ark from place to place. This ark was made and designed in every facet by God's instruction. His instructions were fully encompassing, featuring a level of detail that rivals the iTunes terms and agreements that we also nonchalantly click past. There was no speculation on how the ark was to be handled, no loopholes, no uncertainty. God left no excuse for his people to not relate rightly with him. I think this has to do with God being a relational God. Um, and it's the dying, uh, the sense in him that we cling to every syllable that he has lest we die. Um, the reason that he wants us to take his word so seriously is because he takes our relationship with him so serious. Let's um, read Numbers 4.15 where it says, and I'll go through this part a little bit quicker. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp set out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things, the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. Why did Uzzah have to die? Could God not see Uzzah's well-intentioned reflex was not purposed to offend his law? Uzzah was familiar with the ark, um, more than anyone, really. He was from a respected bloodline, uh, which was allowed special access to the temple and its elements. For months prior to this ceremonious day, the ark had been kept at Uzzah's father's house, Abinadab. He was well aware of the special precautions that the ark was to be handled with. Being selected a pole bearer or one to accompany the ark, it had been repeated at nauseam for what, how he was to handle it. Um, but, uh, and he wasn't given a calling that would allow him to handle the ark in this way. But Asa comes from a religious family, a good family, a family of good repute and high esteem. He was clearly highly respected to have been allowed so close to the ark in the first place. Um, and in that day-to-day -day war for social status, Asa died. Not at the moment he touched the ark, but at the moment where the religious practices were so routine and so dead to him that he'd be willing to elevate himself past God's law because it's the right thing to do. Uzzah, as Eugene Peterson put it in his book, Leap Over Wall, is the person that, who has God in a box and officiously assumes responsibility for keeping him safe from the mud and dust of the work. You see, the ark is not a symbol of us putting God in a box. It's his omnipotent presence that we get to walk alongside. Uh, Uzzah suffered death by religiosity. His spiritual life became about what he could do for God, how he could help the church, how he could praise the loudest or to serve most noticeably. Uzzah's reaching out to touch the ark was not an instinctive error made in a thoughtless moment. Rather, it was the manifestation of a lifelong obsession turned addiction, 
with managing the ark. In the process, he made the things of God his God rather than God himself. This type of religious practice makes oneself more righteous and God a bodiless entity who is requiring of you to accomplish his purposes. This kind of twisted mindset ends up making you the one blessing our Father rather than the other way around. The ark was never supposed to be carried by a cart. As per God's command, it was to be carried by men who would bear the burden of his holiness. This technological innovation, though certainly making their lives easier, pulled the relationship of God's provision and sanctity off of their shoulders, taking, removing the skin-on-skin relationship in order to make God more manageable. Uzzah became the poster boy for a generation of humans who displaced the divine to uncritically embrace technology. This is a good moment to ask, does technology pull us away from relationship with the Father? Do we surrender to advancing cultural, advancing cultural norms to ease our burdens? This isn't to make this an anti-tech message, uh, but just to touch on the incomparable value of relationship. Where are we sacrificing relationship to lighten our loads? Peterson writes that the eventual consequence of this kind of life is death. For God will not be managed, and God will not be put and kept in a box. We don't take care of God. God takes care of us. Have we become too casual about our relationships with Jesus? Have we reduced his reign to the church from forgetting that his majesty is over all things? Have we gone caught up in practices of God without the relationship? It's at this point that it's really worth noting um, that it feels inappropriate that I would be the person speaking on this subject based off of my own personal struggles with these tensions. Um, I fall on both sides of the issue. Part of me wants God to be formulaic so that I know exactly how to deal with him uh, and not entirely have to relate to him. That there be a rule book which I could easily follow checking off the boxes and then calling it a day. But that's not who he is or what he's desiring of us. On the other side of the spectrum, there's a part of me that wants God to be cool (laughs) uh, and not take himself too serious. One of the most impactful things that has ever been said to me is by our late friend, Josh Woodruff, who would often say that nothing is deserving of honor except for God. Um, That meant I'd honor the things uh, God was doing or saying, but everything else was fair game for jokes. That life principle, though, having high levels of truth has also gotten, uh, has shaped me a lot in ways that have sort of gotten me into trouble at times. I have uh, been on record for requesting that uh, we replace amens with chest bumping uh, um, for the fellowship. Um, on another instance, I said that we should maybe think about installing a kiss cam uh, during the tithes and offerings part. Uh, just a, he- a holy kiss more than anything. Uh, and uh, it wasn't to be weird. I thought it would spice it up. Uh, uh, and I'd even talked about installing a dunk tank for the baptismal um, so that we'd all be more involved with it and to increase our church's aim, which is something that is a cool thing. Um, and though these things are humorous, lighthearted, and well-intentioned comedy, they're making light of things that are actually quite eternal. Baptismal is an eternal peace. Communion is a moment where the prayer on earth as it is in heaven is actualized. Worship is a moment where your spirit and his spirit tune themselves to one another. 
These are not laughing matters. And though I certainly believe Jesus and the disciples laughed and joked together, I have recently felt convicted of cheapening what is holy. I don't believe God has called us to be unnecessarily stringent, but to be ones who see the burning bush and recognize that his presence puts us on holy ground. Enough about Uzzah for right now. Um, the story of Uzzah continues beyond his death, and I would like to us to move there. Uh, let's read of the following events in 2 Samuel 6, 12. Um, I'm going to jump around certain verses, so I'll go 12 to 15 and then 17 to 19. Um, and it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark uh, from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod, which I hope that's how that's pronounced. Um, so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord and with shouting and with sound of the horn, um, and they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins for each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house." David, after a period of mourning and wrestling with Uzzah's death, receives the ark. This time with no parade of note, the masses are unwritten of, the liveliness of the city wasn't aroused. But in the presence of the ark, David sought to delight his father. The ark was not a point of pride for him, but a symbol of God's bigness and goodness. He tore his clothing, offered uh, costly sacrifice, and danced in a way that shattered cultural senses of propriety. For David saw that he had nothing he could offer God, but his heartfelt affection, his sonship, his obedience, his disregard of what the world says, because God is simply good, bigger and better. As for David, he will celebrate before the Lord. He will not strategically analyze the situation to advance his personal prerogative before the Lord. He will not play it cool to ensure he doesn't embarrass himself before the Lord. He will not... Uh, he will not compartmentalize his spiritual life in a way that allows him to follow his own preferences while looking like a good Christian before the Lord. He will simply celebrate before him. For David loves God's laws and sees them as extensions of his holiness and his character. God gave the law for himself as a way to make clear how great he is and how inadequate we are. It's a remedial treaty that redirects our worship given as the manifestation of his authority, holiness, and righteousness. His law exists as a way to make clear our need of his mercy, grace, patience, and long-suffering compassion. If none ever stand in need of them, they can never be exercised, and consequently, never be known. If none, uh, Curtis often reminds us that the seven most important words for a Christian are, he is God, and I am not. Isn't that nice? <laughs> Isn't that so much simpler? So much better than toothless religious practices done without the power of the Holy Spirit and his resurrection manifest? God's bigness doesn't exist to be an awful burden to you. 
On the contrary, his bigness means that even though he is so monumentally huge, he loves you, and he is for you, and he wants to celebrate with you. But the result is blundered if you're not seeing him for who he is. A strong father, a worthy legislator, a fair judge, a gracious king, a God who is bigger than you. And that's a good thing. I love Joey. The story doesn't end there. The most amazing thing is that all of these stories we've been telling are not linear. It's not A to B. It's A to D to F to Z to back to B to... It's all over the place. And so continuing, we see another person enter into this story that Joey has so uh, eloquently told us. Look at 2 Samuel 6, verse 16. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, or Michael, it's easier for me, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today. That's sarcasm. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. In talking with Emily about this story, she made some really good points that we should be quick, or actually not so quick, to judge Michael because actually... There's sympathy to be shared with her. First, the Bible tells us back in 1 Samuel that Michal loved David. It says it twice. It never says whether David loved her in return. Michal was also quite noble, at least initially, in choosing David's welfare over the wishes of her own father, Because her father was trying to kill David, and so she helped him escape by lowering him out the window with a bedsheet, and then lying to Saul's men who had come to kill David. This, of course, cost her greatly. David fled. We don't know that he ever made contact with her again. In the meantime, she is taken from David's marriage and given to another man. Harsh reality for Michal. And after David became king, as we talked about last week, he negotiates with Abner and tells Ishbosheth, who happens to be Michal's brother, to return to him, David, his wife. He's already had six more wives, but he wants Michal back. And as Emily said, this may have been necessary but it also had to be humiliating. To make matters worse, 
At least two of David's wives, Bathsheba and Abigail, are noted several times in the Bible as being called beautiful. But Michal never has that said of her. We're not really certain what people, how they saw her or the value that she held for them. So before we completely villainize her as being disdaining of David in her heart, we need to see that on many occasions she was strong and she was quite noble and she's deserving of our compassion. Still, on this day, she missed it. On this festive day of great spiritual and national significance, as the ark of the Lord is entering into the city of David, Michal is once again standing at the window, but this time not with a bed sheet. This time she has judgment in her heart. And maybe the most telling thing about these two in this moment, having all that David has gone through with the loss of Uzzah and the misunderstanding of the whole process, and now having returned to do this deed of bringing the ark back into his city, now maybe the most telling thing of Michal is that she is now called the daughter of Saul and not the wife of David. Her eyes had dimmed, and in her eyes, the view of the king, David, her husband, was that he was undignified, that he was shameful, and that he was not acting the part that he should play. Isn't it interesting that Uzzah was acting his part, and it cost him his life And when David would not act the part that Michal thought he should, God honored him and judged Michal. In her eyes, he was undignified. He was not dressed as the king as he should be, but as a priest. And he was dancing like one of the entertainers. Now, there are many that think that David danced naked before the Lord. And some Bible stories and even illustrations believe that that might be true. Here in this passage, it says that he wore an ephod or an ephod, which is a linen garment that is typically worn by the priest. In Chronicles, it also says that he had a linen robe. So I don't think he was quite as naked as we're led to believe. But he wasn't wearing what kings normally wear. And that's the point. He disrobed, not to nudity, he disrobed from position. And this caused Michal great distress because David wasn't playing his part. He wasn't doing what he should, and she despises him in her heart. She finds David's behavior completely vulgar, uncouth, Un-king-like, like her father. He was a king. David is acting like a clown. Was this the glory of the king of Israel? She thinks to herself. She says to David, half naked before his servants 
and the daughters of his servants. What was he thinking? But of course, as we read this story, we recognize that even though we could sympathize with her in some ways, we have to ask ourselves, what was she thinking to accuse God's anointed? Even her husband, David, didn't do that of her father, Saul. He honored the anointed one of God. Never let someone put a hand on the anointed one of God. Made sure that God knew that he trusted God to deal with the anointed one of God. And now, Saul's daughter is judging the anointed one of God. Of course, her reaction makes us think, what are you thinking, Michal? Not what is David thinking. Why was she embarrassed of David? Was she afraid for him? That this would come back to haunt him? Or to undermine his authority? Was she jealous for David's affection? Something that she wanted all along and maybe never felt? Whatever it was that motivated her, when David came home to bless her and the others of his household, which he did, she lashed out at him in fear and hurt and mistrust. She couldn't trust him. She couldn't trust God. Maybe she thought she had good intentions. Maybe she thought she was motivated correctly to help David see that he was out of line and needed to shape up or he might too fall prey to the demise of her father. But her interpretation of David casting off the royal garb was a perverse exaggeration of what was really going on. He was removing the royal robe of position, not just the royal robe of clothing. And he was doing so as an act of worship before God, humble worship. You know, when you think about the story of David, there's been a whole lot of disrobing going on. I mean that in the best sense of the word. There's been a whole lot of royalty disrobing, taking off the garment that is royal in order to honor that which is God. For example, when Jonathan first comes in contact with David and David has slain the giant and everybody is singing the praises of David, the Bible says that Jonathan's heart was for him. And what did he do? He stripped himself of his robe that was on him, and he gave it to David. Why, even King Saul himself, as he was pursuing David, who was on the run and who had run to Ramah to hide there with the prophet Samuel, while David was hiding with them, Saul was after him, and he sent men to get David. And as they would come into this area that was known as a school of prophets, the men of Saul would fall under the power of God, and they would begin prophesying the greatness of King David. On two occasions, Saul's men went to do this, and Saul got frustrated. Why are they falling under this spell? And so Saul went to see David himself. And as he got into the presence of Samuel the prophet there at Ramah, the school of prophecy, the Bible says that he too stripped his clothes off, King Saul. 
And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all day and all night. So now David is just following suit. No pun intended. He's removing his royal robe, his royal dignity, not for another person, not for another king, but for the king over heaven and earth. And so David danced before the Lord in nothing but priestly garments, not in the royal robes that kings should wear, but in only the thing that says, I serve the Lord. This phrase, before the Lord, is found six times in this chapter six of 2 Samuel. Before the Lord. And it helps us see the difference between David and Saul, between David and Uzzah, between David and the ways that it once was. First of all, Saul's kingdom was for himself, but David's kingdom was going to be before the Lord. And we see it as he answered Michal in verse 21 of chapter 6. And David said to her, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. It should make us walk circumspectly before the Lord. Just like Uzzah, Michal was presuming that she knew what was best. Do we do that? Do we presume and judge others based on what we think that should be done? Are we trusting that the Lord is the one who sits on the throne and their worship is pleasing before him? Our fear and embarrassment are vying for control that never bears good fruit. It's not honoring to God. It's not honoring to him at all. The one who we can trust. And it's also not honoring to the people that we're trying to manipulate. It hardly ever works out where we get what we really want when we act like Michal. Or when we do it like Uzzah. And sometimes we end up killing what could really be while scrabbling to make it what we think it should be. As Joey said, we have to see God for who he is not who we want him to be. We have to see him for who he is. He's a strong father, Joey said. He's a worthy legislator. Lord knows we need those. He's a fair judge, a gracious king, a God who was bigger than Uzzah and Michal and David and you and me. And as Joey said, that's a good thing.